Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. So I'm so excited, you guys. We're here to chat about Amira's new book, Concrete Kids is an Exploration of Love and Loss, Melody and Bloodshed. Musician and playwright and educator Amira Leon takes us on a poetic journey through her childhood in Harlem as she navigates the intricacies of foster care, mourning, self-love, and resilience. In her signature verse style, she invites us all to dream with abandon and to recognize the privilege it is to dream at all. She's received a lot of praise for this book, rightly so, as you will see in a moment when she reads her pages. Hanif Willis Abdurraqib, New York Times bestselling author of Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest, says, I will close my eyes and disappear into the pages of this book for many years to come. Rosario Dawson says, Amira's wondrous awe for life and all its terror and splendor is inspiring to witness. Booklist says, Leon's powerful book will embolden readers to find their own ways of speaking out against injustice, plus many, many, many more wonderful reviews you can find online. We're so happy to welcome Amira. Welcome. Hello. Oh, so happy to here. have you. Yes, I'm happy to be here as well. We're feeling a bit starstruck because you've done so much. Can you talk to us a little bit about balance in this frantic world and talk about your writing process and how you find time to write? Okay, let's break this down. <laughs> balance in this chaotic world. Honestly, I I consider myself a person that works with language and vibrations. And so my goal is to communicate in the realms in which a message or a story or an idea is best represented. So I, my output is very chaotic in the fact that it transcends medium and genre and goes into music and poetry and keynote speeches and workshops and all of these different spaces. But to me, I'm just trying to, I'm always allowing my ideas and my words and my thoughts to take shape, you know, themselves before dictating where anything belongs. So it's kept my my work very, very exciting. So I wake up on any given day and I'm never doing the same thing. The things that are expected of me are never the same. So it's kind of just this beautiful, spontaneous experience and So there's always space for it. I'm always ignited by it. I'm always excited to tackle something. So working on Concrete Kids was an insane process because I was working on Concrete Kids while also in the middle of, I went on, I think, four different tours across Europe and the U.S. while writing it. And I was recording my first debut album, you know, at the same time. And so there were days when I woke up and I only worked on music. And then there were weeks at a time where I was only on the phone with my editors, iconic editors, Rachel and Nathaniel at Penguin. And, you know, it just always, it always was something that I I love to return to. Balance is an interesting story because it's never really the different aspects of my career that need balancing. It's more so my career and rest that need balancing. So that's been an interesting journey, especially during quarantine where I've been invited to recognize 
exactly how mobile I've been in the last five years, you know, in not moving at all. <laughs> I recognize that I've not known this state of stillness or even being in one city for more than a month in years. And yeah, now I feel like I'm understanding what balance has, what imbalance I was operating on and how to really navigate what it looks like now. Because as artists, we really need time to be inspired as well. As much as we need time to be working and writing, we need time to receive the world and receive others and have good conversations and to be inspired, to have a dream that we don't chase immediately and to have ideas that we don't write immediately or sell immediately, you know? So yeah. I'm kind of blown away. I was. I wish you could have seen me when you were answering. So I was just smiling away because I love when you said like the vibrations of creativity and how you let something sit with you and then you decide what it is. And I yeah. think that we talk a lot here about like the rules of publishing and the rules of you know, writing a query letter and a first page and, mm. and that we don't talk enough about just creativity and letting it sit and then letting it be and then finding where it belongs later on. So it's mm. fascinating. Um, has your creativity changed with the stillness of being home? Oh, yes. I I don't think I've ever had this much time to let my myself think, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I've just, I, I, I still had my calendar set for what life would have been in 2020 had it occurred. Mm. And so I was getting all these messages of my, um, of my flights that I was missing and all these awareness, like you have sound check at 6 p.m. on August 3rd at this festival. Like I was going to do the most music festivals I've ever done. It was going to be my first year doing literary festivals because I had a children's book a children's illustrated book called Freedom We Sing come out in July. And then, you know, now Concrete Kids. And so it was going to be a huge year of appearances, physical, in-person. I'm with students. I'm with fans. I'm in the room to being in my home. And for the first time, having the time to say, what is it about this place, this place here that I used to just consider a, a place to lay my head in between tours. Like, mm. what is this now that it, it must be a sanctuary? What does a sanctuary look like for someone who's used to being on the road and living out of their suitcase? What does that look like for me? And it's been absolutely fantastic. Um, I painted my living room orange and... Mm. My office is a bright teal and my room is lavender and I have plants everywhere. And I'm saying this because I recognize that I could bring all my favorite parts of the world that I've built in my writing or the, wor or the other parts of the world that I've physically visited into this home, into this space and allow myself to create here. And being from New York City, certainly never painted the walls before. <laughs> so, so I took a risk. My landlord is going to see these things. It's going to take two weeks to paint this white again. But every day I wake up and I'm excited to write. I'm excited to be present. I'm excited to face whatever it is that must be faced. And I think that having that much time to sit with myself has made 
healing at the forefront of all of my actions. My schedule will never in my whole life for the rest of it, as long as I live, be what it was. It's not sustainable. It's not livable. And I'll never rush another writing project again Mm. either. Because I feel like it's Concrete Kids. I'm incredibly proud of what was summoned in that time. But it was like being a boiling pot of water, you know? Like Mm -hmm. I was always on the go. I was writing this on planes. I was writing this in between gigs. I was really overwhelmed and so excited to be that I didn't recognize how when you're in that process of creation, you must build a safe way to create. And the work is what it is, what it is, what it is, what it is, what it is. But knowing that I was under those circumstances and and now being in this place of peace and calm and focus, I'm like, whoa, what would this have been if I just said, ah, let me go take three months with this advance they done gave me. Let me take this three months off of working and work on this. And I think, you know, as a writer and as, as a reader, you know, you know that the author or the creator or yourself is going through a lot when you choose to write about yourself and to be autobiographical. And I just am really excited for what why, what my work, because it's always, it tends to be autobiographical, what my life will be like when I give that much focus to my process as a writer as well. As much focus as I've been giving to healing myself and my community when I give that to the process of writing itself and dreaming enough before I start writing too. Can you tell us a little bit about energy management? I think this is always an issue for a lot of writers, but especially writers who have more going on in their lives. And as as you mentioned, not everyone gets the opportunity to take several months and just work on a project. Do you have any tips for writers who have to balance a lot of elements of their lives? Yeah. Build accountability within your community. And if you don't have a community, make sure you let your publishers know that they need to build one around you then. I think a lot of people have different relationships with their editors and different formalities with their agents. I don't know, you know, very much about anybody else but my own experience. But for me, it was incredibly crucial that I let my publishers know this is what my schedule is. This is what I'm doing. Here's who I want to be in an ideal situation in the process of this work. And here's how you can help me achieve that. And then for my best friends, I said, hey, I have this deadline for my editors. Here's the deadline. Here's when I need to have it done so that I have enough time to review it. And here's when I would love to have it done in an ideal time. Please set an alarm in your phone to my sister, to my best friend, to anyone I'm dating, literally. Please set an alarm in your phone so that you can check in on me. And it's low key. It's a text. It's, did you send in the draft? Hey, did you get a chance to edit? Hey, you know, and I just knew that I needed people to hold me accountable beyond myself. And that was amazing. And also, I don't know, being graceful, being graceful, being really graceful and open to learning. I don't really like reading in the process of writing something. If it's a body of work, if it's a, you know, a poem or an essay, sure. But if it's longer, I don't really like reading in that time. So I build really intentional conversations Mm. as well that I record and that I listen to between me and friends, me and strangers. 
And yeah, just finding new ways to inspire yourself on the go. If it's on the train, then you leave, you abandon the music for a second and listen to the people around you, write down 10 sentences and see what happens, you know, and also accepting your work as it is allows it to be right every time. And sometimes you need to write a lot of different things before you find the source of what is going to become the fountain that then overflows and overflows and gives you a full body. But I think distrusting your work or editing too soon when you don't get to have that time to especially sit down, but also for writers who do have the time to sit down, I suppose, editing too soon dismantles an opportunity in any direction. And so allowing yourself to flow and find the source of what is going to provide you with the fullness that you're seeking is really important. Yeah. And then finding other things outside of writing that inspire those things too. So I would go dancing a lot right before a huge deadline. (laughs) And I would just go and feel what my body felt like to just let go of everything and to be free around other people and with myself. So I I suggest those things because then you find yourself being focused in different ways. And so when I'm stuck writing, I I tend to dance in my living room (laughs) and just let my body find out what the words need to be for me. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, trust yourself, find the source and build accountability within your community. Can you read to us from Concrete Kids? Yes. Yay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This is the first page. (laughs) This is for the concrete kids. The kids with the melanin kiss. The kids drenched in poverty. The kids who are told to cut their hair, to tame their tone. The kids who are told to shorten their names and disappear their tongues. The kids who are told they will amount to nothing. The smart kids who are told they are problematic, the problematic kids who are told they are stupid, the kids who are taking care of their families in between extracurriculars, the kids who cannot go to extracurriculars because they are taking care of their families, the stoop kids, the hungry kids, the thirsty kids, the foster kids, the kids who aged out of the system, the missing kids, the homeless kids, the kids in jail, the kids awaiting trial, the innocent kids, the kids who never got to be kids, the kids navigating the violence of hands, the kids who are being taught to fear themselves, the kids who refuse, the kids in gangs, the kids thinking about joining gangs, the kids who started them, the adults they became, the adults who wait for the blood to dry out in the sun with the laundry, the kids who bury the adults, the adults who bury the kids, the angels they became, the angels they will become. More specifically, this is for the boy in the white tee and the breath I saw escape him. Thank you. Wow. I, you know, as a t- I'm a former teacher, you know, who taught in the public school system, and it is literally one of the most beautiful first pages I've ever heard in my life. And so important. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Really loved it. And, you know, just speaking to just the, the feelings and, and what the, those kids, you know, in those situations, you know, it's to, to have you see them. And I know you said this is autobiographical to a point. Is this memoir or is this kind of just putting yourself back into your childhood self? Oh, it's absolutely a memoir. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I decided when I realized Penguin contacted me to write a piece 
that, and we were talking about like the importance of navigating grief for young people in, in a world like this, where grief, whether it's your own family or simply people who look like you, is everywhere. And now, especially in the age of coronavirus too, you know, obviously I was not aware of this when writing Concrete Kids, but yeah, I, I just realized that the only way that I could talk about grief is, is by navigating the things that I was going through in the age of the children I was meant to speak to. And so I just, I, I really revisited, honestly, age 13 for myself. I was a young girl facing an incredibly adult world being treated like a child, you know, and I think a lot of children that I work with, a lot, a lot of children that I was raised with, we are excluded from, you know, the hyper-intellectual nature of what's happening politically and socially and economically, but they're experiencing it at the same time as us. We're all in the same world. So kids, they don't actually get to escape that reality anymore. Before phones and all these things, sure, but now it's just inescapable, the reality. And so I really wanted to create something that allowed kids who are aware of the world, because they are, to be able to, to see reflected a conversation that doesn't diminish their intellect. And I wanted to say, I see you, I am you, and look at who I've become. And I invite people to know that they have choices in who they become regardless of who they are. Yeah. And I also, you know, that first page was important to me because it was a manifesto, actually. My process of writing before, again, I start anything, like I write hundreds of manifestos. And to me, a manifesto is just a stream of consciousness of pure intent. And what happens? Who this intent? Who is this intended for? What is my purest you know, in an ideal world, how will my intent be executed and received and just building a universe, building a universe, building a universe. And how can I make the world safer? How can I make the world safer if not anywhere other than these pages? You know what I'm saying? And so that was actually unedited, 100% a manifesto that I wrote for this book before anything else in the book existed. And it was a demand to my publishers. I said, this must be the beginning. <laughs> um, so, and it just feels right. It's, it's an invitation because whether you identify with any of the things I've said in that space, everybody knows that it's for you. But yeah. It feels a little bit like at the beginning of Greek epic poems, the sing to me muse, you know, mm. we're going to cover all of these things. Yeah. Um, why do you think it is that adults tend to forget that when kids are kids, they still sometimes have an adult perspective. Where do you think that disconnect comes from? Well, I think it's from it's from a deep-seated desire to protect in a way. And I think our society has really focused on protecting ourselves with a lack of transparency. You know, and so we see that with government, we see that with any contract you're ever faced with. There's all this language that says everything except what it means, you know, and there's all these laws that do exactly what they don't say they'll do, you know, and it's just like, so the lack of transparency builds an ignorance that one would hope would keep our youth young, I guess, <laughs> building an adolescence from a hope rather than a reality is a huge issue in 
American culture, according to me. But, <laughs> um, you know, and I, I think that, yeah, I think it comes from this deep desire to just pray that they don't that they don't have to experience this, that they don't have to engage with this reality, that they don't see the headlines, that they don't, you know, experience death and disease and chronic illness and disabilities in any form. Like, we just hope that they're not experiencing those things because we, whether we've experienced it or ourselves or are afraid of experiencing it, it's also how we breed fear into our youth and a fear of transparency builds an entire generation of people who are terrified of themselves and of each other. And so I, I, I yeah, that's my answer. What would you tell your 10-year-old writing self? I would invite myself to speak. Mm. I was a very quiet child. I wrote everything down. And I write about this in Concrete Kids too. You know, I had like, you know, I was in 13 homes. I moved 13 times by the time I was seven, you know? And so I... I uh, was in court-mandated therapy, and they would be like, oh, draw pictures to show how you feel. And I used to just laugh at them, like, I'm not going to draw pictures. <laughs> but I would write poems, and I would write, and I would write, and I would write, and I would write, and I would write. And when I was 14, I started to speak, and I started doing spoken word and taking it seriously. And I was taken very seriously at a young age for, you know, poetry. But... I would tell my 10-year-old self to speak and to not be afraid of the sound of my own voice and what it's capable of doing. Yeah, and I would say that to anyone, honestly, in any age. Don't be afraid to speak. Get acquainted with the sound of your own voice and invite it to be the impactful thing that it is. Our vibrations are, are, are tangible in the air. They're tangible wherever they are, even if it's just with ourselves. So please allow yourself to speak to yourself and, and build a confidence that allows you to speak to others because the revolution relies on our ability to communicate. Just going back to a few things we've touched on so far, you mentioned that you told your editing team that you needed help with them to build you a community. And mm -hmm. you mentioned that, and it, I find this uh, <laughs> from the perspective of an agent, I completely agree that a lot of contracts, it's what's not in there that can hurt you. Exactly. Um, can you talk a little bit more about communication within publishing and what you found works best? Ooh. <laughs> I know. It's Friday. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> well, honestly, I'm a very transparent person. I don't have a manager, an agent, anybody. I'm unrepresented. So I have experienced a lot of very specific things as an independent artist doing everything myself. So, uh, and I'm one of few on all of the publishers that I have who doesn't have an agent. So there is no liaison between me and them. So I found that that has been an interesting experience for most of my publishers <laughs> because they're not used to talking directly to the creator themselves either outside of a few meetings. So I feel really lucky that I've been able to build quite an intimate relationship with my editors and every single person who works on my book um, because they're dealing with me for everything. So there's a level of transparency between all of us that I know doesn't exist in other situations because I know I have a lot of friends who do have agents and they find out things at last and I find them out the second they're happening. <laughs> 
And that's made me invite a lot of my friends to say, you know, to demand transparency and to demand those things because they are accessible. I'm finding out, you know, but yeah, I think just being honest and I, you know, I I told them from the beginning, I am busy. This is what I am doing. I want to do this project so badly that I'm going to make it work, but I need you to work with me. And I let them know the language that I like to be spoken to. I let them know that there's there are times to call me, there are times to email me, and there are times to text me to say that we need to hop on a call. You know what I'm saying? And recognizing that for myself was really interesting because writing is such an intimate experience, you know? So before, if I'm getting an opinion, we're hopping on the phone and looking at the notes together. You know what I'm saying? If you're giving me critique, then send it to me via email so I have time to sit with it. You know what I'm saying? Like, So yeah, I just think allowing yourself to really find out what your ideal is and then asking your environment to greet you there and what's possible is possible and what's not is not. And then find out if they can help you get resources for whatever else you might need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm so impressed that you were able to navigate all of that. I think it's often scary for writers to ask for what they need and sometimes Mm -hmm. hard to even know what they need. And I'm just really impressed that you were able to do all of that. Yeah, those are the most important things. You know, every time I speak to anybody, I say, find out what it is that you need to be able to to give your 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 best. And then let that be the priority, you know, and invite everybody. If everybody's here, you know, especially when you're working with publishers or anybody who's trying who who the there's a business aspect to it. We both want this to be successful you know? And I know that I am the asset. I think a lot of creators are in this position where they believe that the publisher is the asset to the situation when it's actually, no, it's my ideas, my thoughts, and my words that will be printed on the page that gives you a reason to continue being proud and to continue expanding as a publisher, as a distributor. You know what I'm saying? And so I think building that confidence and understanding exactly what it is that you are offering when you give, when you when you choose to share your, your universe with a publisher or a team, you need to be able to trust them and you need to be able to know that they will protect and honor and do everything that they can to spread the word that you've written. And a lot of people are like, oh, well, you know, it's my first one. And I'm, the, uh, and I'm like, there is no, there is no, your resume sh- doesn't need to exist before you demand respect in any room, you know? And so if you need a certain amount of money because you got to pay your rent and health bills and pay for your child and do whatever, or because you simply know that you're what you're worth, then that's the amount of money you ask for, not what's written on the page upon arrival, you know? And I think creators are, are really the reason why the industry succeeds is because they've put creators in a position where they feel like they are reliant on the industry to work when it's really that the industry is reliant on the creators and the continued innovation of new generations to to exist. So always walking into that situation and knowing your value and making sure that everyone treats you with what you are worth and that if it's not happening, that that becomes the primary conversation because we all have the same goal. Let's make something gorgeous that may just change the world, not something that is created in an unsafe environment that requires exploitation to succeed. You know, and I think a lot of writers don't understand exactly 
exactly how much control they have in the way their books are distributed, marketed, and the process of editing them as well. Oh my gosh. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I think there's someone else I was just beeping, like they heard me saying yes, like yes. <laughs> and, you know, and I don't, I think that especially as women, we're not, you know, like I feel like we're moving into a new phase mm-hmm. where we are kind of walking into our power as, as things are being pushed down and we're saying no, you know, like we're moving forward. And I'm so like impressed how you phrase that in a way of just empowerment. It's amazing. Um, So you said, and you just led me into the next question, um, which is about really just changing the world. So how do you see as an activist, your art and your books changing the world? Well, interesting. I, I think, I think that each individual person is capable of, of anything. And I think that each individual person is a universe of their own. So as a writer, when I imagine who will be sitting with my words, I think of the potential and the never-ending experience of the universe that is digesting what I've written. I think that intention in me is what creates a level of safety in my work where people go and this is just based on, again, people letting me know how they felt, but it ignites people to be as honest as I've been with myself about themselves. And I think my priority is building a space where regardless of the difficulty, we are comfortable in all aspects of our emotions. And that is how I execute my work uh, at all times. I look, I expose the wound so that we can heal from it together. But yeah, I feel like as an, it's, it's just, it's kind of hard for me to even conceptualize this question because I occupy many different spaces intentionally because I know that if you get all corners of the room covered, suddenly mm-hmm. we're, mo- we're mobilizing, you know what I mean? And so as a musician, I make work that invites people to, to, to welcome dissonance and to be incredibly confronted with themselves and with my experience and with anything. It's very political work, but to also dance in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to sway in it and to release in it. And I do this thing where I invite my audiences and Freedom We Sing also has inhale, exhale, opportunities. I invite my audience to breathe with me and to remember that a breath is all we need to manifest. And this is all that actually exists between us in this very moment is our breath. That's what we're sharing in this moment. And then I invite my audiences to scream with me, to release whatever it is, the doubt, the anxiety, the the frustration, you know, the fear to release those things so that we can just allow ourselves to be. And so My work in all realms focuses on the liberation of the self. The more free I allow myself to be with myself, the more free I can invite people to understand they can be with themselves. And that's what liberation is. Is It's a a feeling as much as it is a thought, but more than anything, it's a memory. It's not something that we've never been as a species before. And so I, I, I feel like I'm doing memory work in the world and 
helping people identify the language that they use for themselves and yeah, just accessing, accessing, accessing the liberation that is within us. Yeah. And I guess in a more visceral way, I teach young people. I work with survivors of all different forms of abuse. I teach, yeah, workshops in memory, accessing memory and going back. And how can we look at the things that we've experienced in our lives and create outlets for the different range of emotions that may need to be released. I thought of being a drama therapist for a long time. So I just found ways of doing that work else in, in you know, without doing all that. <laughs> but yeah. And so, and then, you know, when I just got these, you know, Concrete Kids is my first thought beyond a four minute, you know, song and beyond the illustrated children's book I released earlier this year, like this is way more, you know? And I think with this, I just, I just wanted transparency. I wanted people to be able to see what it was like so that they can invite themselves again to just get acquainted with their own stories and allow their stories to be important enough to share and to recognize the impact in their in in their comfort with who they've been and who they are you know our society they thrive on us thinking that individuals are not to be focused on that there's an issue with being selfish. There's an issue with hyping yourself up or, you know, whatever, like, and I want people to understand that it's actually the individual that builds is a part of building community. You know, I can't forget about, I can't go scarce trying to, to build something that I ultimately can't be a part of because of energy or exhaust or burnout. So yeah. Anyway, I love how you talk about it in terms of energy, almost as if like, if I get myself vibrating on that frequency, then the people around me have a better chance of being able to do that too. And then they can go out in the world and share that energy as well. Yeah. And you have to know when you can, I think that's also why like community building is the most important thing. And it's my first, in in, in the process of any creation with whether it's creative or spiritual or actually organizing community, it's you look at who you're aiming to impact and you look at your energy levels and what your capacity is. And you have to be able to look around you and say, I trust the people who are around me that when my capacity is not at 100, I can tap out and I know that we're covered. And I think that having that relationship allows us to be able to understand that we never need to be like in operating from a place of scarcity in any capacity. So yeah, I think that's super important. Just if if we can trust each other enough to know that we don't, that we can actually walk away, that we can tap out, that we can tend to ourselves, that we can tend to our families, then that's when you know you've done something right. Can you talk about how you were creating music that is that has a connection to your book at the same time? Yeah. Honestly, most of my work is based in improvisation as a writer and a musician. So I, most of the things that you will see in Concrete Kids were instances that are unedited. I don't really, my relationship to editing is interesting. I, I really believe that work exists for a reason. So I don't discredit anything that I've written. So if, if I need to edit it, that means I haven't written what I needed to write. You know what I'm saying? So it doesn't mean that the piece that I did write was wrong because it, it didn't do what I needed it to do. It did what it did and it exists. Um, and now, because I didn't succeed in what it was that I aimed to do, I'm going to write 
again. And so most of the pieces are honestly like the pieces that I said, this is exactly how I mean it to be. And so my work is really like that as a musician as well. I, I work with all different kinds of musicians, but there's streams of consciousness captured for the very first time. It's what you hear on the album. I record everything I do with a good mic so that if it comes out in a stream and it's great, then it stays. And we already got the vocals done. Mm -hmm. So I tend to, my process allows me a lot of grace, but allows me a lot of output as well. So yeah, Concrete Kids was definitely significantly longer than this is. <laughs> but that was mostly because, again, it was like what it says exactly what I mean if I'm unwilling to edit. And the thing that we then looked at was not editing each individual piece, rather editing the way in which they arrived in the book, like their order. So... Yeah. And then my album, though, I was, you know, I, like I said, I would wake up one day and have a session with a producer, wake up the next day and be writing Concrete Kids for 10 hours. And then the next day I'm, I have a gig with my band, you know, and so it was impossible to go through through either process and not enhance or ignite one another in one way. So, yeah. And like on the album, there's five songs on the album and it's a 15 track album. But there's five songs on the album that have direct correlations to the stories that I've written in Concrete Kids. And they just talk about the same experience. Like there's this song called Glow. And it says, even if I let it go, they will never let me glow. I saw my brother out there dying on the floor. Where do we go from here? Right? And then in Concrete Kids, there's a poem called Blink. And it describes the moment where I saw this young 16-year-old man get murdered before my very eyes when I was 13. And so in Concrete Kids, we get the, the in-the-moment read. In the moment, you're dealing with this, you're seeing this experience with me, you're having every thought that I'm having in the moment that I saw that happen. And then on the album, in Glow, you're getting the version of me 15 years later reflecting on the fact that I witnessed that at all. And... Concrete Kids is literally about the age 13. It was the year I got adopted. It was the year I outed my abuser. It was the year I changed my name. It was the year I witnessed a murder. I went to like six different funerals that year. It was crazy. It was insane. And I was only 13 years old. And that was one year of my life. Concrete Kids is literally one year of my life. And Witness, which is the name of the album, is again, it kind of goes through my, it, it, it gives the adult perspective on all that I've witnessed. And so it was impossible for these bodies of work to exist without one another. So yeah, if you're looking for something to listen to before, during, or after you've read Concrete Kids, I highly recommend Witness as a sister experience. And we will link it, link to it in the show notes. Yeah. So if you're going to give some uh, one final piece of advice to writers listening, what would you say? The best advice I've ever been given is start before you're ready. I was listening to Arinze Kene speak, who is an undeniable writer, playwright, actor, musician extraordinaire um, from the UK. But I heard him speak and he said, start before you're ready. You may just spend your whole life preparing to be ready for something that you could have perfected by now. 
And that's, that just, it was, it was, it hit me like a, a, a like another spring. I, I believe so much in the reality that we limit our capacities by deciding who and what we can be and are capable of before we've ever tried. So if you want to write a novel, go sit and figure out what is, again, your necessary community and ideal to be able to create something that long form and ask yourself enough questions that you come up with just enough answers and just Mm -hmm. enough imagination. I think that's just, yeah, start before you're ready. Start before you're ready. And honestly, in the process of publishing, always ask yourself, before you sign any contracts, do you feel safe in this situation? Is your the universe that you are building as a writer safe in this situation? And you as a writer, beyond the creativity, as a person, are you safe in this situation? Because the world continues happening. You know, and like being a writer in the time of coronavirus and having to get your whole entire life together, but then also having deadlines. You know what I'm saying? Like understanding who you are in the context of yourself and in the context of the world and in the context of creativity in the moment. Are you safe? And do you feel like you guys are ready to go on an adventure together? Because as a Black writer in 2020, the way that a lot of traditional publishing experiences, and this is not me talking about anyone specific, it's just a general experience of being a Black writer in this moment. There are ways that we need to remember that we can take control of the narrative and we can say that, you know, we need Black team members. We need to see diversity on our in our leadership when it comes to our work. And you can demand these things. And just because it's not offered to you does not mean that it's not on the table. And I, yeah, and I just urge you to remember, again, even speaking of the table, you built the table. Your idea and your energy and your craft and your gifts are the reason why anyone is in the room with you. And why anybody deserves to be in the room with you. So trust yourself and know that you're the asset in every situation. Protect yourself, protect your work, and know that your work is a holy offering and can indeed change the world. That's so lovely. Thank you so much. (laughs) Where can we find you online? AmiraLeon.com. Amira Leon on Instagram, Amira on Spotify, and all of those places. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. And not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to Academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with First Pages Podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.